Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. You know, technology is great. It's a lot like our faith. Uh, when it's turned on, it's effective. <laughs> when, it, when it's muted, it's not so good. I, I reminded you last week, when we were, or two weeks ago, when I was speaking, that having a million dollars in the bank does you no good if you don't know how to access it. Having a faith but not understanding how to practice it, uh, again, is next to useless. And we're given in this passage of Scripture knowledge of not only what it is that God has done for us in Christ, but how it is that we are to cooperate, to join Him, and to yield ourselves to Him. Everywhere you turn in the stories of the Bible, you will find an admonition, a call, an exhortation, an encouragement, an instruction, a command to be people of prayer. In the book of Chronicles, uh, here's the instruction God gives when the temple is being dedicated, a place where we go to present sacrifices, a place where we go to repair broken relationship, a place where we go to offer our thanksgiving to God, a place where we would go to seek after him. And these are the words that were given through the prophet. And he said, if my people, it's, it's a question mark. Will they? When will they be ready? Will they come into my presence and seek my face? And he goes on and says, If my people, the the ones who bear my name, the ones who belong to me, the ones I have chosen and called and redeemed, the ones that are my family, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven forgive their sin and heal their land. It's an instruction to pray. It's not, it's not just a come to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Come and be counted. Come and give your tithe. Come and sing. Come and worship. It is come and pray. Talk to me. Seek me. Find me is what he's saying. That the heart of the faith of the Christian is not about the practice, although obedience is clearly the definition of our willingness to do what he says. It is that we will be people of prayer. When I was with you two weeks ago, I told you that your identity is demonstrated through the wearing of your helmet of salvation. It marks you. It identifies you. It demonstrates that you are his, not only protected by salvation, but that you are his agent his ambassador, uh, the one who is demonstrating the power of the gospel through their own lives. And this morning, I I want you to see in these verses of Ephesians chapter 6 that we are in verses 18, 19, and 20 to be devoted to prayer, both in what we practice and then in how it is we go about practicing our prayer. Let me put it this way, that we learn that it is our concept of God that fuels our practice in prayer. 
It's, our, it's who we know God to be. It is how we are in relationship with God that fuels and forms and propels and encourages us to be people who talk with him frequently and often about all matters of our lives. Put another way, it is the God we know, the one who has lavishly loved us, the one who is the one who took the initiative and came on our terms so that we might become his forever family. When we know that and we're grounded in that, maturing in that, developing in that relationship with him, then we will discover that it fuels our prayer life. We need to be in conversation with him. We need to have this constant contact with him. Prayer is, as already said by our pastor, the powerful weapon that is given to the hands of the Christian. But a weapon is not there for us to be used to do what it is that we want, as if we yield it to accomplish whatever purpose we have. Rather, prayer is the right alignment with the purpose with the person and the purposes that God has for us, so that when we pray, we, we, we don't pray anything that occurs to us to ask or whatever need it is that we happen to be facing, although for sure we're not to exclude those things from our communion and conversation with God. But it is that we are aligned to do the very thing that he's asked. His will above our will. His kingdom above our empire. His glory above our success. You see, when I say prayer is a weapon, I do not mean that it defeats at any time human opponents. It is not that we wouldn't talk to God about those who are resistant or a barrier or those who are doing us harm. Rather, it is to understand that the purpose of prayer is to advance the kingdom of God to the point where even the gates of hell will not succeed in resisting the gospel. We take that territory because God has given us the power of the gospel to defeat the enemies. What are those enemies? They are sin and death and the devil. The gospel defeats all of these things for us. It is not that we defeat them. It is that they are defeated through Christ. What are we? We're simply ambassadors of the message that demonstrate its power both in our life and its capacity to change any person who is willing to receive it. It's amazing. It cannot be hindered. In this passage of Scripture... I want you to think of your prayers in the model and with the same boldness that Jesus manifested and taught us in his earthly ministry. You know the prayer. Many of you were taught it in school. Many of you have become familiar with it. But when we become familiar with a thing, you know, we stop noticing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? For example, if I said, what was the color of the front door of the church that you walked into this morning? Would you know? Or would it be your best guess? You know how that is that not only things that we're so familiar with, we, we might realize that we have said good morning to our wife and we actually don't know what she's wearing.
You understand, some of you are, oh, sorry, men, some of you got a sharp elbow in your side just now. We become so familiar, we stop seeing, right? Because we think we know what it is we've seen, and we stop seeing it. So when it comes to a very familiar passage like this, the Lord's Prayer, when the disciples said, look, you know, John taught his disciples, why don't you teach us to pray? He gave us what is typically called and that we understand is the Lord's Prayer. But it was really the pattern of prayer for us as his followers. And what are those two lines? Your kingdom come. Father, your kingdom, not my kingdom. Your will be done. Where? Here, in me, now. Not then and there, but here and now. I want to see the power of the gospel so transform the lives of God's people that when they see us, they go not only, oh, so that's how Christians live, but that's the kingdom of God displayed in power. Because look, when you think about it, there are so many reasons a church like this shouldn't function. I'm thinking ethnically, linguistically, generationally, experientially. There are so many things that could divide you, yet what is it that unites it? It is your faith in the person Jesus Christ, correct? It's his will, it's his kingdom, it's his power. And when the world looks at us and says, in criticism, well, they could be better, our answer needs to be, well, you should have seen us yesterday. There's been a lot of improvement. <laughs> you know what I'm saying is that we are a work in progress. It's not instantaneous, but it is the demonstration of the power of the gospel in us. His kingdom. And there are many barriers and impediments to prayer. You understand when I talk about what keeps us from praying that there are manifold things, but I want to suggest to you that I think the greatest barrier and impediment for us in prayer is that we do not know the God who's revealed himself to us as we should. It is not that we don't have the word, it is that we haven't really understood what it is that it says to us in such powerful terms. For example, when we read the word God, we interpret it through the lens of our experience and culture. Instead of listening to God saying, look, I'm taking uh, the curtain back. I'm showing you all that I am. Not to simply put us in awe, although awe will be part of our experience with God, but so that we know him intimately, deeply, and as we walk with him, that knowledge and understanding and relationship develops and matures and grows. If we do not know God, then how can we ask him for what he wants? We would simply imagine, oh God, you would probably want what I want for me, right? Be because you're good and you're the source of all good things, I know that much about you. And therefore, I should imagine by using human logic that you want what I want for me. Wow, that's a pretty big leap from all about me to claiming it's really all about God. You understand what I'm saying is that if we have not fully possessed our identity in Christ, who we are, who he's made us, and matured in our understanding, how can we then deeply, passionately, affectionately, fervently love him back in the same way that he is deeply, passionately, affectionately, fervently, and constantly loved us? It's remarkable that this is his nature, that his mission was for us. 
the whole reason Jesus came to this planet is not to display his glory alone. It was to display his glory through his condescension and humility so that, friends, you and I could become part of his forever family. If we miss that peace that God is the missionary God on mission to redeem us to himself, we miss the best part of the gospel. It is not that God is finally telling us what it is we need to do so we get what we want. The truth is he's telling us so we get him. And when we get him, our lives are transformed. We have the one who loves us so profoundly that he was willing to face the humiliation of a human birth. Think about it. God uncreated, powerful in glory. We celebrated at this season, was willing to be encased in human form and go through those Horrific experiences when you think about them, that someone cleans your bottom and feeds you when you're hungry and burps you when you're uncomfortable and dresses you and carries you. How dependent God became on Mary and Joseph as he was growing in humanity, right? You understand what I'm saying? And he didn't appear in the temple uh, precincts in Jerusalem in the palace of David. He came among us, what? As the weakest and the most impoverished. So he could be what? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Wow. Right? Not sometimes, not on Sundays, not when we need him, not when we're inclined to ask for something. 24-7, every moment, every day, all day, every day, with us. Why am I harping on this? Why am I landing on this? Because look, if, if it's when we know God in his beauty, when we understand him in the fullness of his grace and mercy, when we know we've been accepted and adopted, when the joy of the Lord becomes our strength, when his peace flows in the inner man, when the fullness of his love comes to us, we will not want God to do what we want. We will just want him. And when we have him, we have all, right? Often our prayers reveal the shallowness of our thinking, to be candid. The weakness of our petitions, the smallness of our wants, the selfishness of our interests. All the attempts that we might use to say, all right, God, here's what you said. This is what you want me to do. Do you like me now? Misses the point that God liked you when you were the least likable, the most indifferent, the most troubled and difficult version of you. He found his way to redeem you 
then. It's not about earning favor. It's about working out the favor we have. It's not about earning more so that we get what we want. It, it, you know, here's our problem. If we looked at Luke chapter 15 and understood that boy who's called the prodigal who demanded his inheritance before his dad even died, it's an atrocity, and he took it and spent it on himself in wild, crazy living. We understand all that that means. But you know there was a boy who left home but never left home. He was the older brother. And when the young boy came home, he was so mad. It's wrong. You're not supposed to give grace to the undeserving. As a matter of fact, you should give grace to the really deserving. That's me. When did you ever give me a party? When did you ever slaughter the fatted calf for me? And you know what the dad says? I have always been with you. What's he saying? You've missed the best part. Everything I have is yours. What are you talking about? I didn't give you a party. Do you see the problem? The son didn't want dad. He just wanted dad's stuff. How is it that we as believers can become so mired in life that we forget the awesomeness of being his children and fall into thinking we can control his blessing by our behavior, by our words, by our actions, so that we can get God to do for us what we really want. And God is saying to us, you nut. I have always been with you. You see, that's what our deep, maturing, satisfied understanding of God is that fuels us to drop to our knees and speak to him about what it is that he wants done. That's why when we come to this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 3, and it says, uh, pardon me, in verse 18, and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He's basically saying to us, be all in. Be mine. Talk to me about what matters to me. Talk to me about what's going on in the kingdom as it comes onto this planet. Talk to me about the progress of the mission. Talk to me. Right? In the spirit at all times. It's likely no surprise to you and I that Paul's application of what he wrote in this passage of Scripture is already modeled for us in an early section of Scripture. If you would just flip back into Ephesians chapter 3 and read a few lines with me. In Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14, this is how he's praying for the Ephesian church. And this is what he says, For this reason I bow my knees before God. What? I drop in humility before the God who loved me extravagantly and you are the focus right now of my prayer. I'm talking to God about you. Right? That's what he says. Uh, I'm praying for you. How am I praying for you? And he goes on, he says, from whom every family in earth derives its name. In other words, he's the source, he's the strength, he's the focus, he's the one that gives us our identity. 
And this is what he asks for, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. In other words, you need what I know I need. You need God to be at work with inside of you so that you really understand who it is you are in Christ. And he gives you the ability to understand internally all that he's done for you and all that he has for you. It's so easy for us, isn't it? To be pushed off that focus. He says, that, that, that's how I'm praying for you, but it doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, not, not only do I want you to be strengthened in the inner man through his spirit who is now living within you, but this is why, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Faith. And here's what we misunderstand about faith. We think that that means I need to believe more. I need to believe stronger. I need to believe harder. I need to really work it up. Wrong. Faith is not about you. Faith is always in an object. It's what you believe. And you and I believe in Jesus. Right? So what he's saying is, I want you to be strong in the inner man. The spirit is indwelling you so that you would be able to comprehend who Jesus is. You see, when you have faith in who Jesus is, even though it's as small, Jesus says himself, as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move and the mountain will disappear. And you think, oh, well, that's a power I'd like to have. Then you miss the point. The point is not that you can be a physical mountain mover. The point is that you can move the mountains that are in the way of the kingdom of God coming to this planet. And he has given you that power in Jesus. Right? that you and I as ambassadors of the message are changing the eternal destiny of the people around us. You see, he's saying to us that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In faith, all we're doing is agreeing with the work that Jesus has done. We're simply coming into an alignment. We're not making it work. We're not adding to the work. We don't take anything from the work. We are simply in agreement that he's done it. What has he done? He took your place and God's Judgment that you deserve was put on him, and his righteousness, which you don't deserve, was put on you. Jesus said it this way in, in John chapter 15, I'm really praying that you would abide in me and I would abide in you, just like a branch, and probably there was a vine right beside them, just like this branch is in the vine. If you don't abide in me, you've got no life in you, and if you abide in me, you've got the life you don't produce, I produce it, and it flows into you. You understand what I'm saying? It's not about you. It's always about Jesus. And our faith is simply agreeing with God as to what he's done. And when he's praying for him, he says, Oh, God, 
They need to know you. You need to dwell within their heart. They need to be rooted and grounded in this love. They need to be persuaded that only you could do this. They need to continue to be convinced that apart from you, they're nothing. They need to be able to see that you are everything. They need to have Christ in them. That's how he's praying for the Ephesian church. That's how he wants us to pray for one another in this way. And this is the battle because we're so often pushed in circumstances off that place. So let me restate it in, in yet a, another way. In this passage of Scripture, what we are learning in, in Christ is what it is that he's done for us, how it is that he's come into our life and, and taken over and changed us. And in this context, then, we begin to understand who it is and what it is that he's done for it. So... Uh, let me put it another way. When, when Christ comes into your life, he buys you, right? You, you understand that term. In redemption, it is that the blood of Christ is applied to your debt, and Jesus actually takes ownership of your life. He, he owns you. That's why Paul says, really, I'm going to call myself the slave, the one that was bought in the open marketplace of the world, and I was redeemed by Jesus. He exchanged his life for mine, so now I am owned by Jesus. I'm his property, and he's going to live inside of me. I am his house, but imagine if I just change the metaphor a little bit, and we have a real house, and Jesus is the new owner, but you're still living there, and you decide how are you going to treat him? Well, I, I, I think I should treat him nicely, so I'll put him in the guest room. And I'll feed him his favorite foods, and, and I'll make sure he's looked after, and the laundry is done, and he doesn't have to lift a finger, and I'll do all of that for him, and I think he'll like that. And then he's there for a week, and you say to yourself, he's never going away. You know, it's like when you get married, Keith, you think, how long can I keep up this pretense of being such a great guy? Eventually, the curtain's going to fall, and she's going to know the real me. It's, it's kind of terrifying. You know what I mean, man, when you get married? Like, what happens when you burp inappropriately? Oh, you understand. Now, here's the point. If you treat Jesus like the honored guest, I'm not saying it's inappropriate, but I'm saying, look, he's the owner. He's not the guest. Do you think somehow he doesn't know about you what you don't want him to know about you? Do you think just by, you can hide it? And you say, well, look, Jesus, now there's a couple of ground rules I want to go over with you. There's a closet in the basement. Under no circumstance, go in that closet. Why? You're embarrassed about what's in the closet. You haven't emptied it yet. As a matter of fact, you have no strength and power to empty that. You, you're ashamed about that. And you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to look at you and say, you know, something stinks in this house. I think it's in the closet. And you go downstairs. And you open the closet and there it is. Now, do you think he didn't know it? Do you think God in human form who, who's lavishly gave his life for you, is somehow ignorant of what you're hiding? Why am I going through it this way? Because I'm telling you that if our salvation is not working itself out in the details of our understanding, our prayer life will be form and missing the content. 
We might do what he says and work really hard at it, but we're missing the best parts of it because our faith has not transformed our identity or our concept of who God is and what he wants for us. That's why we need to know who he is and what he's capable of. Because when he's the leader of your home, not only does he know the circumstances on the inside, he's going to replace the roof and the door and all those things that are leaking and the plumbing that's inadequate. He's going to reform your entertainment. And you're never going to say to him, look, you know, I've got a few friends, but I'd rather you didn't meet them. Why? Because I want to play two sides of the fence. I want to do what I want, and I want God to understand it. And he says, you're mine. And the problem is you really don't know how good I am, how great I am, how kind I am, how loving I am. And you think you can't live without the dog vomit that you've got outside. And I'm here to tell you, get a grip. I have so much more for you. You understand how I'm drilling down into our false reasoning? Because when he says to us, I'm with you and my spirit is with you, I'm never going to forsake you, we suddenly realize that the world of which we're so terrified has no power over us any longer. Well, now, could it kill us? Oh, of course. That's why Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8, in all these things, we, we, you know, we're like sheep to the slaughter. We feel like we're, we don't have any strength and power and control over anything. And he says, no, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through Christ who loved us. How can that possibly be? And then he goes on because he said, there is nothing that can ever separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing present. There's nothing to come. There, there's nothing in the past and there's nothing in the future. There's no angel. There's no demon. There's no height. There's no depth. There's nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. And suddenly, I don't need to be in control because God is the one who has made me safe. You understand? And therefore, when that Spirit of God is within me and he says to us, now this is what I want you to do, I want you to be in constant communion with me. It's called prayer in the Spirit at all times. It's like what Jesus did when he had been uh, at Capernaum and he had healed Peter's mother-in-law and he had uh, demonstrated his power and glory and the whole village came and he couldn't even eat and nor could the disciples and they brought all the sick and he healed them and they demonized and he dispossessed them. And then they went to bed probably exhausted and everyone went, boy, there's never been a day like this day. I hope we get to do this tomorrow. And when they come looking for Jesus because the whole village is at the door again early in the morning, there's no Jesus. Where is Jesus? You know what it says? When it was still dark, long time before it was light, Jesus got up and he went to a solitary place because he had to pray. Because he was confused, because he needed something. He had to say to God, now, if I don't talk to you about this, you might not give me what I need. Is, was that it? W was he concerned? No, he had to be in constant communion with the Father. And so he gave up a few hours of rest so that he could go and speak with him. And the disciples said, man, there's, you know what? They're ready to make you king of this place. <laughs> this is so exciting. We've never ridden ministry like this before. Everybody wants a piece of you. And Jesus said, well, let's go to the next place because that's why I've come. 
here's what I'm saying to you. When you walk with God and are filled with the Spirit, you will know the primary things that God wants you to do, and you will say no to everyone else's wonderful plan for your life. Because if you don't know your plan A, everyone else on the planet has a plan B for you. You understand what I'm saying? So when you pray in the Spirit, you will know what to say yes to and what to say no to. What is the distraction and what it is God wants you to do. So in John chapter 4, when Jesus is going back to the Galilee because of the dust-up that the disciples of John and his disciples have had and things that are going on, and it's not really smooth at that moment, and it says this, interesting enough, in John chapter 4, he had to go through the Samaritan's land. And you know what? That makes no human sense because it was the long way around. But when he meets the woman at the well and she is transformed and the village comes to faith, we go, oh, I understand now. What am I saying to you? Abide in Christ and he in you and he will direct your steps. And then he goes on, he says, pray, supplications, what does it mean? Let all these requests be known. Don't carry anything with you that is a burden. Give your burdens to Christ. Peter puts it this way, casting all your care upon you because, on him because he cares for you. So you talk to him in the spirit with all kinds of every supplication, every need, every interest, every concern. You share with him, of course, we have that freedom. According to what? His will be done. Your kingdom come. And then he goes on in this passage of scripture and he adds to it. He strengthens it. He, he pushes it out a little bit further when he says, not only should you be at all times with all prayer and supplication, but you should keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for the saints. What does that mean? It means you need to pay attention to what the needs are right now. What's going on in people around you right now? What's happening within your family right now? What's happening in the community, in the world right now? And you know what's happening in the world right now. We're all concerned about COVID, aren't we? Lord Jesus, we need to pray to you about COVID, but you know what we also need to pray? That we can bring the lasting peace and the real safety to people who are worried about things they can't control. That's the gospel. They need you. And then you know what it is? He, he says now, and you also need to pray for me. And I don't know about you, but... I don't think we need to pray for your pastor, do we? Because your pastor is the super guy in the church, right? He, he walks just a half a step closer to God than the rest of us, right? We believe that, don't we? Like, he's not going to have any discouragement. He can just shuck it off like water off a duck's back because he's so close to God. You know what I'm saying. I'm mocking a little bit, aren't I? And I'm, that's not because I, I don't believe any of the things I just said, I, I think he does walk close to God. I think Paul walked close to God. So when Paul says, you need to pray for me, the church will go, what? Well, well he just prayed for them in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 onward, right? We read that. And then he says, I want you to pray for me. And we're thinking now, why do we need to pray for Paul? He tells us why. He said, because I'm an ambassador of the gospel and I'm in chains. It's not going easy for me right now. And there's a few things that I really do want you to pray for me. The first thing I want you to pray for me is that I'll open my mouth with boldness 
Because I don't know about you, but there's nothing like pain to make you quite self-interested and selfish as a person. I know this from personal experience in pain. I remember an incident when I was a young father, Don and I were living in Kamloops with our three kids, and I went outside and the neighbor had not cleaned up his fence and there was a few of his posts on my side. He'd, he'd done some work and, and just left his stuff on my side. So I picked up one of the posts and I threw it over the fence and I don't know to this day how it happened, but it hit something and it bounced back. And you know when something is coming at you, you usually put your hand up to stop it. And, and I did that and it bent these three fingers back against my wrist. At that moment, I didn't care I was a pastor or a father or a husband. I was just in agony. Now, by God's kindness and intervention, I didn't use any bad words. That was a good thing to look back on. But I can tell you at that point, with three kids running around me, I was not a dad looking after them. I was a hurt man looking after me. My point is this. There is nothing like pain, discouragement, and disappointment to take your eyes off Jesus and put them on you. And to ask all the questions like John the Baptist asked of Jesus when he was in prison. Remember what he sent his disciples to say? Go and ask Jesus, are you the one or should we ask for someone else? Nothing like pain to cloud your views, right? And what did Jesus say? Well, he said, well, go and tell him that you've seen all the miracles. In other words, look, the demonstration of who I am in relationship to God is evident. Let it speak for itself. I'm the one. He's saying, I don't want to be in prison and stop being bold. I don't want to be in prison and go, you know what, if I speak the gospel, it could go worse for me. I, I think I'll just take a pass on this one. Instead, what did he do? He wrote the, as Ephesian church prayed for him, he wrote the book of Philippians. And he said, now I want you to know how it's gone for me. In other words, he's saying, wish you were here. It's incredible. I have a fresh audience of the gospel every time they change the guard. It's incredible. That's what he writes. Because I think the church did what he asked. And he said, not only do I need to have the boldness, but you know what? I need the right words every time I speak. And this is what he's saying about the gospel. Not only is the gospel a body of truth that all of us can memorize, we need to use words and language that the people we're talking to understand. We need to use the right word pictures that connect with a person who's either resisting what we're saying because they've got a wrong understanding of it or interested in what they're saying and we want to make it clear Ask that I'll have the right words. Right? Pray for boldness. Pray for the right words. And, and pray for me because I'm in a difficult situation. I'm an ambassador with limitations. Now, when you think about that, you realize how to pray for your pastor. You realize how to pray for the elders. You realize how to pray for your spouse. You realize how to pray for your children. Because they're all facing consequence, uh, circumstances that will take their eyes off who they are and who God is and shrink them down to getting by instead of wearing the armor and going to fight. This morning, you might be here. You might be what we would call a seeker, someone who is interested in who God is and 
and what it is that he's done. And I'm hoping that as I've been speaking to you that the first thing that you would understand in terms of application is that God loves you. More than you will fully know, but enough that you can already respond. You might not know everything that you want to know, but you know this, that God so loved you that in this Christmas season, we celebrate he sent Jesus to be yours. That's enough. Let me encourage you, it's enough. Start the journey. He'll start filling in all the blanks. The second thing I want you to consider is, do you know who God is and what he's done for you? But have you closed the book on understanding all of who God is? Have you stopped maturing and growing? Do you need to go back and understand as Paul wrote, and he put it this way, I want you to know together with all the saints what is the height and depth and breadth. What I want you to have a 3D picture of the love of God that is overwhelming and saturating and in you. What is he saying? That when you are Deeper in your knowledge of who God is, you'll be more powerfully effective in praying for what God wants. And you'll be in alignment with it because you will want what he wants. You know what's amazing about this in marriage? I want to tell you this little story as, I, as I'm closing in this application. When I got married, I added my wife to my life. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. But I added her. I didn't think about a new us. I just thought about an extended me. And she was going to be part of my life and fit in very nicely. But I want you to know she came with her own opinions. And they weren't always mine. And we had lots of things, have lots of things to continue to figure out. And one of the things I know that I said in sort of a magnanimous gesture to Donna, um, let's go camping. But what I didn't know and had never experienced with Donna, we never talked about vacations when we were dating. We just talked about the here and now and that kind of thing and ministry and goals. And so she said, well, okay. I knew she was less than excited. And I discovered that she had one camping experience with her parents. They bought all the equipment. They went camping. It rained every single day. They made a vow before God in heaven that they would never camp again. They came home and they threw all of their stuff in the trash and they never camped again. So you can imagine I'm climbing an uphill battle with Donna. And she says, well, I kind of would like to go to a hotel. I'm thinking, that's really expensive. We could go for one night to a hotel and two weeks of camping. Now, she was really gracious. She came with me, and I honestly, she would tell you, I looked after her, so it made her life much easier than she thought it was going to be camping. I'm not perfect, but I did that thing right. And then I want you, I want you to know this. I have learned, as we have navigated life together, I do some of my best camping at the Hilton. And that's not just because a happy wife is a happy life. It is because I have learned to enter her interests. And she mine. And I've got the better part of the deal. And I know this in marriage. When you think you've got the better part of the deal, you did. Meaning, you wake up thanking God every day that you have a person in your life that is so good for you. You understand? 
bridge that into your relationship with God. I was such a mess without you. I know you didn't see anything in me that was attractive. I'm so grateful you chose me anyway. I'm so grateful in this day I'm on an adventure with you. I'm so grateful this day we're going to meet your people and we can encourage them. I'm so grateful and I hope that I can help them in some measure know who you are and what you've done, know who they are and what you want them to do. I'm so grateful that in this morning, your steadfast love has not ended yet. Your mercy is new every day and that you will be faithful. There is no one like you. May everyone I meet meet you in me. May everyone I meet hear something of you through my voice. May your kingdom come. May your will be done now. Father God, we're before you. We've studied this passage. There's craft in it. There's details in it. There's a lot of direction. And yet I want to thank you that the core of this passage is you and what it is you've done for us. Oh Lord, I pray that in this Christmas season, as we often say, it falls easily off our lips. You're the reason for this season so true. But Jesus... You came for us, to be with us. May, O oh God, it be our aim that we are ever with you and you with us. For the glory of Jesus and the good of his church, we pray.